before I even start, I, I want you to know that as I talk about communion today, I'm coming out of maybe an idea that's a little bit different than what you're used to. You know, different churches, different denominations look at communion differently. And, um, you know, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, you, you might remember that when you were growing up and you went to church, the, the priest would, would come before the elements and, and he would pray a prayer of blessing. And the, and the Catholic Church teaches that the actual elements go through a process known as transubstantiation. And they're changed into the mysterious body and blood of Jesus. We, we don't hold to that view here. We don't believe that view. And different uh, denominations hold different views. The Lutherans hold a view called consubstantiation. And uh, most Baptists and, and mainstream evangelicals hold what's known as a symbolic view. They believe that the elements, the bread and the wine or the juice, are symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus. And I would hold that view, but I, my view would be even beyond that. I would hold maybe closer to a view that John Calvin held, and that is he held what's known as a dynamic view. And his dynamic view was not only were these elements symbolic, but in the partaking of these elements, the Holy Spirit came and applied to our lives the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus. So that as we're partaking of communion, the Lord is actually present. We're not just doing a symbolic act. And if you think about it, it makes sense because we know that when we hear the word or we read the Bible, it's not just symbolic, right? Something is happening. When I'm talking up here, it's not because of me, it's because the Holy Spirit takes Scripture and breathes life into Scripture. And so many of you can attest to a time you were watching a video or sitting in a church service or reading the Bible or whatever it may be, and somebody was speaking and, and the Word went like an arrow and struck you in the heart and it did something inside of you and you knew at that moment God's talking to me. The Lord's talking to me and He's doing something in my life. Well, it's the same thing with communion. When you partake of the elements and you remember Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and He makes that death, that shed blood, that broken body for your life, He makes it real. And that's why many people through history can attest to that moment of communion while they were partaking of communion. That's when the lights came on and they really understood who Jesus was. Other people can attest to being physically, physically, bodily healed, having diseases leave their body, being restored while they were partaking of communion. And, and, and many people through history can, can share uh, experiences. I know I've had times where in communion, the Lord met me in a profound way. And I knew, man, this is more than just merely symbolic. This is symbolic and dynamic. The Holy Spirit is actively doing something to make this sacrificial death of Jesus real to me. And as I hold up a piece of bread and a little bit of juice, something is taking place in that exchange because I add my faith to it and I believe that God is meeting me in that moment. Amen? Does that make sense? Well, today I want to talk to you about the fact that we are one in Jesus Christ. We are one in Jesus Christ and that we belong to each other by the blood and by the body of Jesus Christ. We're connected to each other in a very mysterious way. To kind of add a little levity to start, this is from a woman named Sherry Yates. She, she shares the story of her son, Seth. She says, Seth, our curious five-year-old, was with us during a recent communion service. 
He watched intently as I received the elements and bowed my head to pray silently. A few seconds later, I stole a peek at our unusually quiet son to see what he was up to. He was by then intently watching his daddy silently at prayer after taking communion. I was delighted that he was observing the solemnity of the occasion. Good parental example, I thought. My gratification was short-lived as Seth leaned toward me and whispered, What's in that stuff? You eat it and go right to sleep. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I love kids, man. I'm just like, what is going on there, man? You ate it and then... (laughs) You know, I have a really important message to share with you today. I want to remind you of what Jesus has done for you. I want to remind you that he died for you, that he took your sin, your punishment, your failures, your abuse, your pain, your mistakes. How about this one? Your abuse of others. And he made you a part of a family with people who have experienced the same things. Jesus made you one with his people. We now belong to each other for eternity. And some of you are not, some of you are like, amen. Others are like, oh man. Right? We're going to partake of communion together and remember that Jesus' body was crucified and abused for us. I want us to remember that Jesus' blood was poured out to cleanse us and make us new, that we're forgiven and we're loved because of Jesus. We are one body through this act. The only basis for our unity is Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That's the basis for our unity. And it's really important that we remember that because we live in a time right now when other standards are being lifted up as the basis for unity. What party are you a part of politically? What political candidate do you support? What belief system do you embrace politically? These have become the means and the methods to determine if you're in or you're out. And I want to tell you boldly this morning that none of those things determine whether you're in or you're out in Christ. Jesus Christ alone determines our unity, right? And so as we get into the Word today, what I'm hoping we'll get a hold of is is to remember If you've allowed your mind to be muddled with all kinds of other information that would divide you from people. Now listen, I know there are places for intense debate and strong disagreement. And it's okay even to challenge somebody that's embraced an idea or a belief system that's bad or even evil and say, that's wrong and we need to talk about this. But if at that moment you say, because you Embrace this particular situation, I'm out. All you're doing is engaging in the same cancel culture that the whole society is engaging in. And the scripture says that we can't do that. We're the followers of Jesus Christ. We are one body. We desperately need each other right now. We need to recognize that there is a spiritual force at work culturally to destroy, to divide, to break families apart, friends apart, and people that are a part of the same house of God apart. And it is divisive and it's evil and it's not God. And so I want to appeal to you this morning as we have communion to remember that Jesus died to make us one. 
Jesus died to bring us together, not tear us apart. There is a place for division if you follow Jesus. Jesus even said it himself. But here was the dividing point. The dividing point was Jesus himself. Himself. He's the only one that can be divided over. Right? Whether you will follow him, embrace him, love him, and call him Lord and Savior, or whether you will not. That's the, o- that's the only dividing point. But some of the other stuff is unworthy. A cheap ripoff. Nothing but a counterfeit. Amen. I know that I am really touching on some spots right there in that, in that opening. So the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus prayed passionately that we would be one before he died. In um, what many scholars call the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed something. And, you know, I, I've asked this question here before, but how many of you believe that if Jesus asks his father for something, the intention of his father is to give it to him? Like, you know, if anybody ever prayed the perfect will of God, it was Jesus. Like some, you, you and I, sometimes we pray and we can get off, right? We can pray and like some of it's, we're really praying in alignment with the will of God. And then some of the other stuff we're praying is just straight out of our own hearts or minds and it's not God. But when Jesus prayed, he prayed in perfect alignment with his father, right? And so let's look at this prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I want you to see this here. It says, Jesus is praying. It's a long prayer. I only have a a three-verse section. But look what he says. He says, I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that would be you and I, right? The apostles wrote it down. We're the ones who would believe in him through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world, look at this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know, second time, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. How many of you know you could just take those three verses and camp there for about the next year and your life would be rocked just by that text, right? The standard of oneness that Jesus prayed for in this prayer is the same oneness he has with his Father. Indivisible. This word as, as we are one, is the same word to describe our unity and the unity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one essence, indivisible. That God and his unity Where when the Father does anything, the Son and the Holy Spirit do the same thing. Nothing is ever an independent action. Everything flows together in union, perfect communion and unity. God wants that kind of oneness for us. I know it's a standard that's so high, it's so holy. You go, how in the world can this be? But He prayed it, and if He prayed it, it's going to happen. The biblical exposition commentary says this, the disciples had often exhibited a spirit of selfishness, competition, and disunity. And this must have broken the Savior's heart. I wonder how he feels when he sees the condition of the church today. 
the Puritan teacher Thomas Brooks wrote these words, Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry, excuse me, for wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, that is unnatural and monstrous. Profound. See, the watching world will believe and know that the Father sent Jesus when they observe our unity and our oneness. You know, our tendency in the time we live is to bring a method and a technique to everything. Right? We know that. And we do it in the church, too. Churches do it. You know, if you have your church service this way and your altar call this way and certain things this way, you'll have more people respond to the altar call and these techniques, and this is how you have people pray. I've been in services where the preacher gets up and he's, okay, now on three, I'm going to count. One, two, three, and at that moment, I want everybody that wants to follow Jesus to raise their hand. And listen, I'm not here to criticize techniques and methodologies. Whether or not those people really come to faith in Jesus, we don't know. That's a mystery that unveils itself in time. We get to see whether they really come to know Jesus or not. But we, we trust in methodologies and techniques and all this training, and we think that that's what's going to win our world. We think you know, what's going to win our world is if we have perfect apologetics. That's the ability to argue for the truth of God. You know, perfect apologetics, and we understand everything, and we know the Bible in and out, and, and, and all of that, and, and, and there's truth to it. Knowing what we believe is so important, but here's the reality. If people out in the outside world saw the followers of Jesus passionately loving one another, walking in unity, working through their problems when there's conflict, there will be conflict, offenses will come, Jesus said, but following what the scripture says, and instead of saying, I'm mad at that pastor, I'm mad at that church, I'm out, and leaving and going across town to the other church across town, just so they can sow their discord and division in that place some point down the line, if, if the world outside saw the body of Christ actually acting like Jesus called us to act, people would be blown away, it would affect them profoundly, family and they say I don't understand how they love like that I don't understand how they do it but I got to know more just saying Whew, oh man I'm on it it can be argued that the greatest evidence we can present those neighbors around us who don't know Jesus is our unity and oneness in Jesus if we are divided, competing, and filled with conflict and anger toward those who are spiritual brothers and sisters, we make the person and the work of Jesus to redeem humanity impossible to see. Could it be? Could it be that the reason so many times people are not open to our message is because they see no display? And in fact, our display of division has actually put up barriers that make it impossible for them to see Jesus. Ooh, that's convicting. Secondly, Jesus' death on the cross makes us one. I'm going to read from the message paraphrase here. So it's a paraphrase. It's not an actual translation by Eugene Peterson. But I want you to see what Ephesians 2, 13 through 17 says. Verse 13. Now, because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing in two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, 
a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Wow. So non-Jews were brought back to God and included in God's people because of Jesus' shed blood and his death on the cross. All of us are in this, all of us in this room now are a part of God's chosen people because Jesus took our sin and judgment on the cross. We used to be outsiders, now we're in. We're apart, all because of Jesus, all because of what he did. Secondly, Jesus shed blood and death makes everyone who believes one new kind of people. There's now a, a new kind of person, a new people group on planet Earth, not defined by ethnic backgrounds, family genetics, cultural backgrounds, national boundaries, class, political affiliation, or race. That people group is called the Church of Jesus, and it's made up of people from every ethnicity, genetic background, nation, class, political affiliation, and race. That's our people now. And you know that's true if you've ever traveled internationally and gone to a church in another nation that doesn't even speak your language, and you walk into the midst of that service, and you're worshiping with them, and you can't even sing the words that are on the screen, and you don't know anything the preacher's saying, and yet when you're in the midst of that, you know you're with your family. And it's weird. It's a trip. It's like you walk in, all of a sudden they'll come to a point in the song and they'll sing the word hallelujah. And everybody sings hallelujah. It doesn't matter. They might say it differently, but, but that's the kind of the common word. And You know, you're going along and uh, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know, you just break out into that, that word because you know it. And everybody commonly is like, yeah, we're the hallelujah people. Right? It's, our, it's our unity in Jesus Christ. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. This is profound. Next to the communion sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he or she is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ is truly hidden. Is it what... How would it change things among us if at that moment you were angry with your brother or sister in Christ, your family member in Christ, you were just re- and you wanted to give them a piece of your mind, you looked at them and all of a sudden you realized, I'm talking to Jesus. Would you, would you say the same things to him if you were talking to Jesus? You're nothing but an heaven. Beep, bop, beep, boop, beep, bop, boop, beep, bop, beep, bop, boop, bop, boop. Right. Would you do that? No, you'd restrain. You'd realize that you're dealing with someone or something that's holy. So you're holy. If you're a follower of Jesus, how dare I touch you? Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. By the way, that idea of apple is pupil. And here's the picture. When God says, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye, the picture is you take your finger and you stick it right into the eye of God. You poke his eye. So I look around this room and all of a sudden I'm, I'm presented with the reality that I'm in the midst of holiness because God in Christ has sanctified you, cleansed you with his blood, washed you, set you apart, and he's actually inhabited your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I better be careful how I treat you and you better be careful how you treat me. Number three, communion celebrates Christ's presence in our oneness. 
1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 in the New King James, and then I'm going to read it in the message as well. Look what it says in the New King James. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. This is an interesting correlation. First, he's talking about communion. And then all of a sudden, he makes the body of Christ, the church, part of that connection. Did, did you catch that? He says, look, look at what he says. The cup of blessing, is it not the communion of the blood? The bread we break, is it not the communion of the body? Oh, and then he, and then he transitions and he says, for we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. So something seems to happen mysteriously. When we partake of the bread together, we're actually acknowledging, we're like partaking of the bread, and then we're saying, oh wait, I'm partaking in this one connection with everybody here because of Jesus. Wow. Look at the message, verse 17. It says, because there is one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in Him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what He is. See, when we partake of the bread, we're sharing in our communion and oneness in Christ. This oneness or unity is of the Spirit of God, and it's of the same quality of the oneness and unity within the Trinity. Whew. Some of this stuff's so deep, you just got to kind of go, okay, I don't quite get it, God. My brain's blowing up right now, but help me understand. Unveil the mystery to me. When we share in communion, Jesus comes to us in our brokenness, and he heals and restores us. You see, even, even in bodies, I want to tell you, one of the best ways to restore division in a church is to have communion together. And restore those relationships, right? To make it right. Communion is a mystery in its work within us. Many people through time have spoken of coming to faith in Jesus, of being healed of physical disease, set free from demonic oppression, addiction, and torment when they partook of communion. God meets us in communion in more than just a symbolic way. The Holy Spirit makes the benefits of Jesus Christ's shed blood and broken body available to us through the communion meal. So you're here today and you're, you're you know, you, let's just say you really messed up this last week, maybe last night, right? Maybe you went on a bender and you said and did stupid stuff and you're embarrassed. Or maybe you've been, you know, engaging in some stuff that it makes you ashamed. Or maybe you got in a fight with somebody. You might have been on your way to church this morning, a married couple, and you just, and you walked in the door, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and you just inside, you're just like, oh, I'm going to scratch his eyeballs out. <laughs> praise the Lord, brother. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm going to kill him. Right? And, and, and that's the way we are, right? We play the religious game, but inside all is not well. Communion becomes a healing point. A restoring point. It can break down the barriers because it reminds us of all that Jesus did and applies those benefits to us through the Holy Spirit. Lee Eklov shares this. He says, a young friend called me to say she'd, been, she'd admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital. 
While she was there, I visited her when I could. One of my visits was on Good Friday. I asked her if she'd like for me to bring communion to her. She said she would, and she asked if some of the other hospitalized Christians could join us. On that spring afternoon, five or six of us gathered in her room and shared the sacred meal. I think it was one of the most meaningful communion services I've ever shared. Half a dozen strangers, each scarred by heartache, sitting helpless in a locked ward. But Jesus was there because we were there as his beloved. He was not only among us, but he was there within us. Even as broken people, we were one with each other. We were strengthened by his presence. We were healed in a way. We were nourished, washed, and rejuvenated, all because we had communion. Amen? Now again, communion is in some... Look, let's, let's be clear. We're not talking magic. We're not talking superstition. We're talking we are with Jesus right now. He's present in this room through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And when we pray and worship him and love him and we're together in his presence like this and then we take out the bread and we take out the juice and, and we remember what he did, we remember your body was broken, your blood was shed and you did that for us, he comes in the midst of that meal and he meets us. And he begins to apply the benefits of his eternal death. He died once for all. And so his sacrificial death, his forgiveness, his love, his healing, all of it is applied to us. We come in faith, believing he'll meet us in the meal. Amen.